Well, if you know me at all, you probably already know that I get really excited about teaching the Bible or theological subjects, which is why I really love it when I get to be the one to introduce a new sermon series, especially here at Roots, because we are blessed to have an amazing teaching team. Not only is our teaching team diverse, uh, having both men and women, as well as different ethnicities and cultures, but we also have a diverse team in our communication styles, in our experiences, and in the wisdom that we bring to each sermon. So every time I get to introduce a new, new teaching series, I'm excited to learn from the other teachers on the team. Next week, we are kicking off a new teaching series that will lead all the way up until Lent. That's, that means it'll be eight weeks long, uh, because Ash Wednesday is February 26th this year. And I'm really, really excited about this new series. It feels very timely, and it feels like it has the potential to be a series that will have a disproportionate impact on our community and perhaps even beyond our community. So starting next week, we're going to begin exploring the journey that many of us have been on for many years. Um, but we don't often talk about this journey in public. We don't often talk about it from the pulpit, so to speak. I'm talking about the process of deconstruction. Deconstruction is a very popular word these days. You can hear a lot about it, especially among younger Christians in the United States and the, Western, the broader Western world. And especially, I would say, since 2016, when a lot of younger, especially evangelicals in the U.S., have been forced to rethink a lot of what they've been taught due to, uh, in part, the resurgence of white nationalism and its connections to evangelicals as a voting bloc. But there's a lot of other areas that people have been on a journey deconstructing too. I want to say that deconstruction is also a natural part of one's faith journey. It's a natural part of no longer taking for granted what you've been taught by your tradition, but exploring the truth for yourself. Deconstruction doesn't necessarily mean rejection. Deconstruction can be a precursor to rejuvenation. For example, one of the very few kind of shows that my whole family can watch together are these fixer-upper type shows. Anybody watch those shows? Yeah. One of our favorite fixer-upper type shows is Good Bones. Anybody watch Good Bones? Good Bones is um, a fixer-upper show featuring a mother and daughter flipper team in Indianapolis. They call themselves Two Chicks and a Hammer. And as you could probably tell from the name of the show, they buy old dilapidated houses and they fix them up and sell them for a profit. Um, usually when somebody says that a house has good bones, that's probably the only thing that's good about the house. Everything else is, is not good. And so that's the kind of houses they buy. In one episode of Good Bones, the viewer is taken from, ew, look at this house with all this trash piling up, broken toilet, foundation with a huge crack in it, snakes in the vents. That, that happened at least on one episode. From there, all the way to the big reveal at the end of the episode, when new potential buyers are walking around the house saying, wow, look at these marble countertops. That's all in one episode. But in order to take a house from dilapidated eyesore to a safe and beautiful home, you have to go through Demo Day. And that's like one of my favorite parts of the show, is Demo Day. Demo day is when the whole team shows up and they're like in their 
gritty clothes and you've got the like big tools ready to tear down walls and break everything down. A house on good bones will have to be stripped down usually to the bare studs and have walls torn out before the reconstruction process can begin. Sometimes the foundation even needs to be repaired. But there's no getting to the new hardwood floors and the open concept living room without exposing all the hidden damage that's underneath. What shape is the electrical in? What about the pipes? That's what deconstruction in our faith is like. We need to get to the bottom of what we, what we mean when we talk about who Jesus is, what the Bible is, what heaven and hell is, and a whole host of other core components of our faith. And not only do we need to discover these things all over again, we need to have them refined. We need to know that they're not just attractive, but they're strong and robust. So starting next week, we're kicking off a new series that we're calling Refined, which is a bit of a play on words. It's both to find again and to make better. Discovering the Jesus way after deconstruction. I don't think you're going to want to miss any of these sermons because the teaching team has been doing their homework and uh, I think they're going to bring it. So that's next week. This week it is still Christmas tide. As Pastor Durr mentioned, uh, the 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas, surprise. They're the 12 days after Christmas. How many of you knew that before Durr mentioned it? Okay, good job. <laughs> I didn't know that until very recently. Uh, so since it's Christmas tide, today is a great day to explore one of the most fundamental subjects connected to Christmas, and that is grace. Christmas tide is all about God's grace, because it's about God the Father sending God the Son in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, born the Messiah to be the Savior of the world. The reason that we celebrate Christmas by giving each other gifts is because Christmas is the celebration of the greatest gift ever given. God's gift of Jesus into the world. So this morning, in honor of this theme, I'm going to share a few thoughts that I've had about grace. And, um, and I'm going to share from a couple of passages that have been on my mind a lot lately. But before we get into the text, um, could we pray together for the Holy Spirit's illumination? Pray with me. Holy Spirit, as always, we need you. We need you to shine your light of illumination upon the text of Scripture and illuminate it to our hearts and to our minds and to our understanding. Holy Spirit, show us what you want us to see this morning. Help us to hear what it is that you're saying to us this morning and take away what it is you want us to take away so that we might apply it and bear fruit in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray you be with me as I speak. Let my words be honoring to you and let them, be, let them fall on fertile soil. And so they bear much fruit. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, I'm going uh, to be reading from the New, New International Version, the NIV. If you have a different translation, you're welcome to turn in your Bibles to it or on your phones or whatever. Uh, I'm going to be reading from Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would be not building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were not told about him will see, 
and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Verse 25. Now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Acadia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. What Paul is talking about here is often referred to simply as the collection. Back when Paul was just starting out his evangelistic and missionary ministry, he began leading many non-Jewish people, Gentiles, to Jesus and to faith in Jesus. And this raised a significant question. Can non-Jewish people become followers of Jesus without first becoming Jewish? Do they have to convert? There was a significant portion of the church at that time that believed Gentiles had to first become circumcised and vow to keep the entire Torah in order to become disciples of Jesus. And this is what the Jerusalem Council is all about in Acts, 20, Acts 15, if you're familiar with that passage. It was at the Jerusalem Council that it was decided by some of the pillars of the church, apostles like Peter, John, and James, the brother of Jesus, that Gentiles did not have to become Jewish in order to become accepted into the church. This was great news for Paul because he'd already begun doing that work, right? This validated his ministry and it authorized him. But there was one more thing that the pillars said to Paul and he relates those in Galatians. He says, Galatians 2, he says, For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. That phrase, remember the poor, is a lot more specific than it sounds at first. The poor in this verse is a reference to those Jesus' disciples who are Jewish living in Jerusalem. They had been ravaged by famine and persecution and they were in great need. This qualification of Paul's ministry to remember the poor was a command to raise a financial offering from among the churches that Paul was planting, who were primarily Gentile churches, for the church in Jerusalem, which was primarily a Jewish church. This collection is also what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 8. And this is a really important passage because in this passage he's going to talk about giving as grace. Listen to this. 
And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of this very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made, made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness and in love, we also kindled in you, see to it that you also excel in this grace of giving. Verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. So that you might become rich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that, your, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is accessible, ex acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now... I rarely break out the Greek because honestly I don't think it often adds very much to the sermon but also because I have a bit of an aversion to preachers who use a lot of like Greek in their sermons usually because I feel like they're just showing off um, and also knowing Greek in my experience doesn't often produce great fruit of the spirit sometimes in my experience it had kind of the opposite effect on people but in this case I think it's important to point out the connection between two concepts in English, that we consider very independent of each other, but in Greek, are very closely connected. Those two are grace and giving. In the New Testament language, the word for grace is charis, and the word for gift is charisma. And the two words are so closely linked that in some places, like verse 7 of the passage we just read, the word charis is translated grace of giving. It's just one word in Greek, but it's translated grace of giving in the NIV. Charisma is so closely related to charis that it's sometimes translated grace gift. A charis is a grace gift. So these two concepts are so closely related. But in English, we often disconnect these two. I think this actually leads to a, uh, a common misconception of grace. In modern Western culture, particularly the United States, the concept of grace has often been associated with unmerited favor. Anybody ever heard that? Grace is unmerited favor or an unconditional gift. And this is largely a result of the Protestant Reformation. Reformers like Martin Luther reacted strongly against the idea that grace was something that could be earned or stored up, like, like store credit, right? He revolted against things like indulgences, which was basically like a way of buying grace. But as, as is often the case, when we strongly react, react against something, we often have the tendency to go too far in the other direction. 
In this case, Luther and the other reformers swung the pendulum so far away from earning grace that they also rejected grace as something that bonds us to each other in love. At the seminary that I graduated from, most of my professors were from the Reformed tradition, and so they thought of grace the way that Luther did. But while I was in seminary, I was also doing a lot of uh, community development work in Boston. And I was working with court-involved youth, um, working with low-income families, working with people experiencing homelessness. And one of the organizations that I partnered with is called the Emanuel Gospel Center, or EGC. It's a parachurch urban ministry, and it's been, been there for... 40, 50 years, veterans of urban ministry. One day I was talking to one of these EGC leaders about urban ministry strategy. And in particular, I wanted to know what is the best way to get the wealthy, resourced suburban churches to give more to under-resourced urban churches? That was my question. How do you do that? And I'll never forget the word that she used because it was the first time I think I'd ever heard that word in connection to, in the context of ministry. She said, what was desperately needed was reciprocity. And I was like, come again, reciprocity? How exactly do churches in the urban core who are financially strapped give to the wealthy churches in the suburban, in the suburbs who don't need it? How does that work? And she helped me understand that money was not the only kind of resource. That there are a lot of ways that urban churches could offer suburban churches resources that aren't monetary. And there could be reciprocity between the two. And, the, and much of the resources that urban churches have are far more valuable than the checks that suburban churches can write. And that's what I believe that Paul is talking about here in the rest of this passage, the one from 2 Corinthians. Here's the, here's the end of that passage. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Paul's concern here is for economic equality, the sharing of resources with those in need. His theology of giving is very different from the modern concept of charity. Paul doesn't view the contributions that the Gentile churches are making to the Jewish church in Jerusalem as unconditional or unmerited. Quite the opposite. He says back in Romans 15, remember that passage? He says that the Gentile churches owe it to the church in Jerusalem. For Paul, there is a bonded relationship that is created by being a part of the body of Christ that goes beyond charity. The language of obligation is really hard for us in the, in the modern Western world. When we hear that language of, you owe me, we think, wait, hold on. I don't owe you anything, right? I'm an individual, and I have not promised to give you anything, right? But that's not how Paul views it. One of the reasons why we have a difficult time understanding Paul's logic here is because it's very different from our Western logic. It's very Eastern and it's very ancient. 
When I was uh, doing the Roman series, when we were teaching the Roman series, I was reading a lot of books about Romans. And one of the books that I read was called Reading Romans with Eastern Eyes. It's by a missionary and a Bible translator who goes by the pseudonym Jack, uh, Jackson W. Because he, he, he serves in a closed country uh, somewhere in Asia. And here's what he writes about the difference between Western culture and Eastern culture when it comes to giving. Western notions of grace lead us to misunderstand and devalue relational debt language. Obligation is an inherent aspect of relationships. Generally, Westerners separate grace and reciprocity such that grace is non-circular. That is, it expects nothing in return from the recipient. But John Barclay points out, this is not a common concept of the perfect gift in antiquity. It was rare to find the gift perfected as a one-way unilateral donation. As a result of this misunderstanding, some Western scholars even argue mistakenly that Paul emphasizes grace rather than obligation. But see, for Paul, relationships create debts that bond people to, together based on identity. It is no mere transactional cost simply tolerated for personal benefit. Accordingly, even Paul is a debtor who is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Romans 15, 27 applies this logic to Gentiles who owe Jews material blessings. In short, Paul's argument for church unity and call to gospel ministry are easily understood, misunderstood without the proper emphasis on reciprocity, that is, relational debt. See, we in the West often misunderstand grace because we have conceptualized it as a one-way unilateral donation. But God's grace doesn't actually work that way. Yes, it's true that God's grace is not obligated. God is not obligated to provide grace. That much is true. But what's untrue is that God's grace is unconditional. Watch this. God's grace is unconditioned but it is not unconditional. God's grace comes with strings attached. God doesn't have to provide grace, but that doesn't mean that God isn't wanting anything from us. God's grace is best understood as creating a relational bond, like family. That's why the, that's why the Bible talks a lot about covenant. Covenant is God's relational bond of family. It's creating a new social reality. God's grace isn't like charity. God's grace expects something in return. This um, misunderstanding of grace plagued me for many, many years. And um, it confused me and it frustrated me. I'll never forget when uh, Oshita and I were newly married. Just been married for a few years. We were living in Boston. And we saw the opportunity to go on a... Uh, marriage retreat in Newport, Rhode Island. We were like, sign me up. I want to go to Newport, Rhode Island. Um, and at one point, there was a breakout group for all the husbands, right? All the husbands go in this room, all the wives go in this room. And I'll never forget that the guy who was leading this workshop was like, I've been married for, I don't know, 40 years or something like that, you know, and I've led this marriage retreat for 20 years, you know, so let me, let me give you the bottom line. Here's the bottom line, fellas. 
Marriage has a love bank. You have to put in deposits in order to take out withdrawals. That's what he said. He said, if you're having problems making withdrawals, it's probably because your request is coming back insufficient funds. That's what he said. And I was a first year or second year seminary student at a predominantly reformed seminary, so I raised my hand. I was like, that's not grace. I know what grace is, and grace is unmerited favor. It is unconditional. I said, so if God's grace is unmerited favor, and God is our model of how relationships should work, and how love should work, then why is it that marriage, that love in marriage is earned through deposits in a love bank? And his response was, well, God's grace is different than your wife's grace. And I was not satisfied with that answer at all. I was like, nope, that doesn't work for me. But it wasn't his description of marriage that was, that was off. It was my understanding of grace. The tradition that taught me grace was unconditional was not aware fully of how distant their modern Western assumptions were from the ancient Eastern tradition that gave us the New Testament. The New Testament concept of grace is rooted in the ideas that gifts create a new social bond and that relational debt is a positive thing, not a negative thing. Jackson W. quotes another author who's written a book recently about this called Paul and the Gift by John Barclay. Here's what Barclay says. What distinguishes the sphere of gift from payment is not that it's unilateral, but that it expresses a social bond, a mutual recognition of the value of the person. It is filled with sentiment because it invites a personal, enduring, and reciprocal relationship. An ethos very often signaled by the use of the term charis. By contrast, the one-way gift establishes no relation, creates a permanent, humiliating dependency, and frees the recipient of all responsibility. Do you see that? I saw this false Western concept of grace one time when I was serving in a church that was located in a wealthy Boston suburb. They had a ministry to the one public housing development in the entire town. And they wanted me to head up that ministry. So I'm asking, okay, how does the ministry work? And here's how they broke it down to me. They said, somebody will go to the Panera Bread down the street and they will gather up all the stuff that they're going to throw away bagels and loaves of bread and pastries and stuff and they'll bring it to the church and we will rebag it and slap a church sticker on it and then we will go to the public housing development and we will deliver these things door, door to door and I was like okay um, that's it? that's the whole thing? I was like what's the strategy here? Uh, are we passing out bread to get to know people? so that we can invite them into relationships and get them to come to church and become family? And they were like, uh, no. No, we're not. We are, I was told, we are not trying to invite these folks to church because they probably wouldn't be comfortable at our church. Our church has an average education level of a master's degree. And I was like, well, how do you know what education level they have? That was the response I got. This is the kind of permanent, humiliating position 
that charity produces. Charity produces this unobligated, I just give you something and you receive it and I'm done. See how that works? That is not how God's grace works. Thankfully, I have experienced the opposite of it. I have experienced the kind of grace that I think Paul is talking about. When Oshin and I were living in LA and I was serving at a church in downtown uh, near Skid Row, we met a couple that uh, started attending the church. Their names are Blake and Debbie Waltman. That, there they are. And um, Debbie was working as a nurse in Skid Row in a small uh, Christian clinic. And Blake is a retired soldier uh, who went back to school to learn how to, to run a nonprofit. And uh, now they live in Spokane, Washington, where Blake runs a ministry serving homeless youth. And Debbie is starting up a program at a local hospital to treat opioid-addicted uh, patients. While we were still in LA, Blake and Debbie kind of adopted us. They adopted uh, me and Oshida and our kids, and they would offer to spend time with our kids so that Oshida and I could get away. In fact, one time, they actually sent us to San Luis Obispo to a hot spring, like a natural hot springs resort. And I'm telling you, like, I've never been so relaxed in my life. Every little, you know, cabin had its own hot springs hot tub. Like natural hot springs hot tub. I was like, can we stay here forever? Um, but they would do stuff like that. And um, to this day, they are still an active part of our lives. Even since we've moved here to Minnesota, Blake and Debbie um, recently visited uh, and wanted to spend time with us. Uh, this is a picture from, we went to one of those um, escape rooms. It was a lot of fun. You ever, you ever done one of those? If you haven't done one of those, you should. Um, my eyes actually began to well up with tears when we told Trinity that Blake and Debbie were coming to town and she told all her friends, um, I'm so excited my godparents are coming. I was like, godparents. <laughs> um, over the last several years, Blake and Debbie have helped our family financially on several occasions. But their gifts are not unconditional. They come with strings attached and we would not have it any other way. We would not allow them to just give us money and then say, we've done our part, we're out of your lives. We are deeply, deeply grateful for their generosity and it has created a social bond. We are debtors to them in the very best way. We are indebted through our relationship of love. And in reality, Blake and Debbie are actually closer to us than many of our blood relatives. They are our true family. That's how God's grace works. God's grace creates a new social reality, a new family. Over the past two years, as I've um, been serving here at Roots as, uh, as your pastor, I have seen this grace at work among us. We aren't a community that is satisfied with just cutting a check and sending it to people we don't know. We are a church that, that is not afraid of those people coming to church. We are not a church that is, is unafraid. We aren't a church that is afraid to go and be with people and build relationships. I've seen that at Laundry Love, and it's been phenomenal. I love it. I'm proud that we are a community of misfits that invites other misfits into relationships. 
And I've seen this grace at work as we've incorporated new families into our fellowship. I consider it an honor to get to know the new families that have joined this year and walk with you through some sleepless nights, through um, conflict with relatives, um, through navigating questions and dedicating and baptizing babies. And I've seen this work also among us as we've served our neighbors. And I love that we are this kind of church that invites strangers to become family because of God's grace. I think because we recognize that we are misfits, we are gracious to other misfits. So in 2020, my prayer is that Roots continues to be a generous church, a church that grows in grace, and a church that adds to our family. My prayer is that we grow deeper roots in this neighborhood and that we find new ways to give to our neighbors in such a way that we create a social bond of love. Not in this unconditional charity kind of way, but in a way that creates family. May the Holy Spirit energize our imaginations and lead us into new and innovative ways to forge bonds of love. And may the Holy Spirit grant us the grace to make family for one another and to be family for one another. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, this, this Christmas tide season, we are reminded of the greatest gift that the world has ever been given, the gift of Jesus Christ. We are reminded that the world is full of darkness and Jesus came into this world to be light, to break through the darkness. And that is your grace. That is your unconditioned but not unconditional grace. Through that gift, you have created a new social reality, a new family on earth made up of all the ethnic groups of the world, the body of Christ. And Lord, we are grateful for this grace. We are grateful to be bonded to you and to be bonded to one another. I pray that you would make roots stronger in this grace that you would grow us in grace, that we would continue to be open and invitational and inviting others into this thing called faith. And I pray that we would become family for one another, that we would create that social bond, and that we would be debtors in love in the best of ways to one another. That is my prayer, and I pray that you would do that among us by the power of your Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen.